0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: The man in the black sunglasses tells the waitress he's fine with just coffee. One of his two lunchmates, a dapper Mexican gentleman he knows only as Dave, implores him to eat something. A shrimp cocktail, perhaps, or a half-dozen oysters. But the man insists he has no interest in food. It is a typically gorgeous afternoon along the San Diego Bay. Sunlight filters through palm fronds into the brigantine seafood restaurant's brick-walled dining room. The sunglass man and his two companions are sit in a semicircular black leather booth beneath yellowing nautical charts and kitschy photographs of old yachts. They have come here to discuss a delicate matter. It is Dave who breaks the ice. He says that he has reviewed a diagram of the man's proposed project, which he praises for its sophistication. He is confident that his associates in Tijuana will have no problem supplying the materials necessary to transform the man's vision into a reality. The only issue to discuss now is money. The sunglass man is wary of getting fleeced. I want to look around, he says as he fiddles with the handle of his coffee mug. See what else is on the market. But Dave is keen to strike a deal. He says that he would be happy to accept a small deposit now, then wait for the balance until after the project is complete. He swears that none of his competitors would ever dream of offering such a generous payment plan. The sunglass man concurs. He asked Dave if a deposit of $100 will be enough to get things moving. Dave seems pleased. He is curious about just one thing. Now tell me, what is it that you want to blow up?
0: Brendan Kerner is a contributing editor for Wired and the author of Now the Hell Will Start. His new book is The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking. Thank you for joining me, Brendan. Oh, Thank you for having me. You describe the golden age of hijacking from 1961 to 1972 as a contagion, and epidemic, and I think that's a theme that carries throughout the book. Mm-hmm. It's a really fascinating vision, and I'd like you to talk about the outliers of this epidemic. The, uh, I guess, events that took place before that weren't called hijackings. They were uh, due to politics. They were given a, a different
1: name. Yeah. So before hijacking, as we call it now, came to America, we had there were flights in Europe, especially from the Soviet bloc going to the West, often to West Berlin. And so when people from Czechoslovakia or or Poland would land in West Berlin and ask for political asylum, the American government did not call them hijackers. They called them escapees. These were people we approved of for being bold enough to seize planes to, to come to freedom. And it wasn't until planes started going from the U.S. to Cuba in the early 60s we started using the term hijackers.
0: And there was even uh, an early American
1: uh, case, which was
0: really interesting.
1: Yeah, there, In 1954, a teenager in Cleveland, a man named uh, Raymond Kuchenmeister, a boy really, 17 years old, Uh, went to Cleveland Hopkins Airport and got on a flight and went to the cockpit and pulled out a gun and told the pilot, take me to Mexico or be shot. Uh, This pilot actually had his own sidearm in the cockpit and brought it out and shot this boy to death, actually. It was an amazing story, but actually very quickly forgotten. In 1958, four years later, when Congress passed this bill organizing government oversight of air travel, they didn't even make hijacking a crime.
0: And that proved to be something that embarrassed them later on once the, the hijackings did strike to break yeah, that's out. that's
1: exactly right. So you have this first outbreak of this epidemic in, in starting in May 1961. And through that summer, you had four pretty significant uh, incidents that summer, uh, culminating in one in August where a father and son actually hijacked a continental airline's Boeing 707 and demanded to be flown to Cuba. And they end up... Uh, having the tire shot out of the plane in El Paso, Texas. And uh there's some there's some violence associated with this. And this is when you have your first congressional hearing about this problem of hijacking.
0: And this was also the first time that the media
1: twigged to the the allure of the lurid hijacking yarn. Well, it was really easy for the media to cover these things so you knew where the plane was going to be when it landed to refuel or, or have you know free passengers or get ransom, so you could easily get your TV cameras set up at the airport and kind of broadcast the drama to an audience of millions.
0: You know, it. what interested me, too, was to read these descriptions of the congressional hearings where in the future of this, of this story, we live in, in a future that is inconceivable to these people. And their response to the hijackings is almost inconceivable
1: to us. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You had these congressional hearings that take place several times during this epidemic. And every time this would happen, some senator would ask, well, why can't we just— screen all the passengers, make everyone go through a metal detector and have all their bags searched. And every time you would have an airline representative or an FAA official saying that's impossible. We can't possibly search every passenger. It would create lines that were too long. People would rebel against the invasion of privacy. It would destroy air travel as we know it if we searched every single passenger.
0: The story you tell in this book, I think, is really fascinating and and beautifully put together. It's Given that it covers 10 years, uh, 159 <laughs> hijackings, yeah. and in-depth on one of them, this is a, a short and intense kind of thriller with a tragic hero, a tear at the end, a bit of joy. Talk about uh, orchestra finding all this information and orchestrating it.
1: Well, it has to go back to the central narrative of the book, which is this couple, Roger Holder, a Vietnam veteran, and his girlfriend, Kathy Kirko, Going back to October 2009 is when I first got the concept for this book. I read a small New York Times metro section piece about a man named Luis Armando Peña Soltron, a Puerto Rican nationalist who had hijacked a plane from New York to Cuba in 1968. And he spent 41 years living in Cuba. And then in 2009, he decided to come back to the U.S. to reunite with his wife and daughter. And this piece in the paper was about him being arrested the second he got off the plane at JFK Airport. And I've always been fascinated by fugitives and exiles. Um, So I was attracted to his story, but also to this phenomenon that hijacking, which is one of the most taboo, frightening crimes you can think of today, was so common then. Um, And so I was looking at a list of people who'd been on the lam for many years after hijacking planes, and it was almost all men. And I come across this one name, it's a woman from a small town in Oregon, Kathy Kirko. And that was my entree into the story.
0: One of the things I think you do really well is to uh, create Kathy Kirko and Roger Holder as characters. Mm -hmm. And what was really fascinating was that they met and they met before they met.
1: Yes. So this is really the moment where I decided this was worthy of a book. I knew that this was a couple that had hijacked this plane and had these adventures. But then I found out that Roger Holder's family, he was from a naval family, had briefly lived in the small Oregon town that Kathy Kirka was from, Coos Bay, Oregon. Uh, his father had been posted at the naval station there at Coos Head. But uh, the Holder family, uh, an African-American family in a predominantly white town in Oregon, had actually been run out of town by some racists in the town after just three months. And days before the Holder family packed up and left... Roger and Kathy had very briefly had an encounter at a recreational area in Coos Bay called Empire Lakes. And so when they reunite 13 years later as more young adults in San Diego, California, they share this moment. And to Roger Holder, who was a huge fan of astrology, this could only be a signal from the stars that they were meant to do something spectacular together. I
0: love the description of Kathy Kirko's uh, upbringing in Coos Bay because it gives a really beautiful slice of lower-class, middle American life in the United States in the 60s. And I think you do a great job of creating that atmosphere of her and her struggling family and her uh, philandering father.
1: Right. Well, it's something I could identify with. Certainly you have her. She's the eldest of four children. Her mother and father split apart when she's going to junior high, very unusual for that time in a conservative small town. She has a lot of responsibilities. And then when she becomes a teenager, she becomes a rebel. She strikes out. She has a lot of anger, apparently, about the breakup of her parents' marriage. And she wants to do things that are extreme. She wants to go against the grain, and that includes leaving her small town behind to move to San Diego. So I could really understand her character of someone who's young and has, has been through some pain as a result of things beyond her control as a youth and wants to strike out and find her own way. And she's just an extreme individual and chooses a very extreme radical way of, of staking her identity.
0: She was an athlete and might have been a, a promising uh athlete who had come to prominence had she not been in the shadow of another uh, gentleman who grew up in the same town.
1: Yeah, so she was in the same high school class at Marshfield High School, Coos Bay, Oregon, as Steve Prefontaine, the the faint, legendary American uh, distance runner. Uh, Kathy Kirko had been a very promising runner, uh, track runner, early in her high school career, but then it stopped competing. As a junior and senior, she kind of drifted more towards this society of surfers who hung out in town and a little more of a party element than people who were spending all their time running the hills. We also get to see Roger Holder
0: brought up and I think what's so interesting about him, he has such a he's intelligent. He has such a kind of a sweet-tempered man. I mean, he built model trains.
1: Yeah, he was uh kind of nerdy in a lot of ways. I think you would say he liked to ride his skateboard and he was a very bright, big reader, but also had some difficult times growing up. You know, large family, several children. His father was away a lot in the Navy. And then he uh, had a high school sweetheart that got pregnant when he was just 17 years old, and he had to drop out of high school. She had twins, actually, and he had to to join the Army to help support them.
0: Holder's time in the Army was really interesting. And one of the things, I mean, I came away from thinking that this guy is really, essentially, he was a hero. He, he got into some serious combat uh, situations, and he re-enlisted to the point where he put his own mind in harm's way.
1: He definitely thought he had a future in the Army. You know, coming from a military family, this was the, the family business in a lot of ways. So he thought that maybe he could make this into something he did his whole life. And so even though he was pretty gravely injured during his first tour in Vietnam as part of um, a tank unit, he chose to reenlist and move on to helicopters. He became a very um, high-performing crew chief for an assault helicopter battalion, and then reenlisted two more times after that. Um, and certainly, towards the end of his service, he started to have some serious misgivings about the war and some serious run-ins uh, with his superiors over some behavioral issues. Well,
0: he was a smart guy too. He was not stupid. He was really quite intelligent, and that that
1: got him quite a ways. It really did, and you can see that in his hijacking plan he eventually concocted. Even though he was somewhat in the throes of a manic episode, you could say he was mentally ill in a lot of ways. Certainly a very well-thought-out hijacking plan, and and it worked. He was one of the few hijackers of that era who didn't you know end up in prison or dead at the end of his escapade. One of the things I think that's
0: so interesting about him is as a veteran, he came out with... Uh Certainly, he was experiencing PTSD even while he was had re-enlisted. Mm-hmm. His method of coping was to use marijuana in increasing amounts, yeah. which somewhat helped him, but <clears throat> also proved to be his undoing.
1: Yeah, so the situation was during his third tour in Vietnam, um, he was stationed in an airbase near Saigon. And he went into Saigon uh, one day to purchase some marijuana and pulled over to the side of the road on the way back to base and smoked a joint. And he was actually arrested for doing that by the military police. Uh, This was the middle of a a big anti-drug mania. In the US military, they've been blaming drug use for a lot of our woes in Vietnam. And despite all of his meritorious service, Holder was sentenced to six months in the stockade, of which he served one month, approximately. And not only that, he was demoted um, to a much lower rank as part of his punishment. And this really uh, incensed him. He was really upset that after all his service, he was being punished so harshly for what he saw as a very minor offense. And that was really the undoing of his career. He complained to a colonel in a very in-your-face kind of way, was sent home and went AWOL. And that was the start of a lot of problems for him.
0: The jail he was put into was uh, the Longbin mm-hmm. Jail, uh, ironically, at an initialed LBJ. Yes. <laughs> One of the things I think you do really well in this book is to the tone of this book is really interesting because it's both tragic and and beautiful but also there's a lot of humor in here because a lot of these hijackings are fairly absurd
1: yeah um there's certainly a lot of these hijackers were not in their right minds when they did this and had de- you know, delusions of grandeur and came up with these crazy plans and, and crazy uh, demands that they would put on the airlines. And so I try to chronicle those and show over time how these hijackings just spiraled out of control. They went from people just wanting to go to Cuba and start life over there, to wanting to go to all over the globe, to wanting money, to wanting all sorts of crazy things, cigarettes and camping gear and alcohol and... You also have a lot more violence as people become more and more unwound and these incidents become much graver and graver throughout 1972, the last year of the epidemic.
0: One of the things that interested me, too, was uh, your description of it as an epidemic. And I was thinking that um, because near the beginning, you have an outbreak, so to speak, in Hawaii. And I was thinking that one of the things that you might, one of the reasons for this might have been was that during the 60s, though, there was national news and to a certain extent global news. It wasn't so intense as it is now, so that um, the reason that the, this meme or this infection or contagion would spread locally was because locally in Hawaii, these ho- hijackings are getting a lot more play than they are nationally.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Obviously, TV news uh developed kind of in tandem with the Vietnam War, right? It was the living room war. And so the approach to news became more sophisticated uh, in the late 60s. And, of course, uh, stations started broadcasting more and more footage from these hijackings. And there's many documented instances of hijackers who got the idea to do this by watching a newscast or would study the the failures of their predecessors and learn to become better hijackers as a result and would change their strategies. Um, Roger Holder certainly did that. There were tons of hijackings he looked at and looked at people who had been failures and figured out the best way to approach this problem.
0: That's when what was had heretofore been an epidemic, became a pandemic, a a global problem, because it wasn't just happening in the U.S. anymore.
1: Yeah, that was a big challenge in the book, is how much do I bring in what was going on worldwide? It was kind of overwhelming. Um, It was certainly happening in the Middle East quite a bit with the people involved for the Palestinian cause, but also in South America, uh, in Colombia and Venezuela particularly, uh, in Western Europe. Uh, There are several instances of hijackings in Greece and, and Italy, Southern Europe. Uh, So there was a a lot of material to sift through and to make some important choices about which ones to leave on the cutting room floor. You know, one of the things I thought was so interesting, too, is the
0: constant uh, refrain of the airlines. We can't search our passengers. Mm -hmm. We we cannot inconvenience our passengers. And that seems just inconceivable nowadays.
1: (laughs) Well, they did a calculation, right? So they um, said we have two choices. We can either spend millions and millions of dollars to buy metal detectors and security personnel to staff them. And not only that, but risk a lot of business. What if people don't want to be treated like criminals just because they're flying and choose to drive instead of fly? We'll lose a lot of business. So we can do that. Or we can put up with 20 to 45 hijackings a year, comply totally with the hijackers. We get the plane back. We get the passengers back. The financial impact is actually minimal. And they opted for, for choice B.
0: It's so interesting. In fact, in the first hijacking, there was only a three-hour delay in the flight.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a flight that was supposed to go to Key West. And so they land, and the Cubans had no idea. And the Cubans were going to shoot the plane down, but finally let it land. They bring the hijacker off, and they let the plane take off immediately. So it really was no bother whatsoever.
0: Now, uh, Congress kept coming to the precipice of, of acting and kept getting pushed back, didn't they?
1: Yeah, there's a, a, a strong thread of, of the political game behind the scenes that prevented security from being increased during this epidemic. The airlines uh, had a very powerful lobby. A lot of ex-FAA officials would work for the airlines. So whenever there was chatter in Congress about doing something, the airlines would make a very strong case for the fact that this would uh, damage their business and damage the districts uh, of people Uh, the representatives. Um, And so every time they kind of came very close to instituting some kind of meaningful changes, things would fall apart at the last moment. Now, eventually, they did come up
0: with this idea of profiling the passengers. And this is like the ticket agents.
1: Right. So the FAA, knowing that they couldn't do too much, decided to come up with this secret skyjacker profile. This is about 25 behavioral cues that they would teach to ticket agents. And they said if anyone fits any of these things on the checklist, you can have them beck and decide. And if they can't provide valid photo ID, you, have the op- you can search them with a metal detector or however you want to do it. It was designed to apply to about half of 1% of all travelers. So they thought that was innocuous enough that the airlines wouldn't rebel against it. I think the big problem with this is that you're relying on ticket agents who are overwhelmed with cust- harried customers every day, you know, thousands of customers perhaps, to implement this. That's not really their job. They're not security guards. And so over time, it's not going to work so well. Were
0: there any recorded instances of hijackings that were prevented by these
1: measures? There were certainly people who were back in side and found to be in possession of weapons. It's hard to say if those weapons were going to be used in hijackings, but... um. It was a very small number. Certainly, once it was put in place, the hijackings only grew crazier and crazier.
0: And when we come to crazy hijackings, there's Arthur Gates Barkley, Mm -hmm. uh, who uh, turned to be kind of uh, the canary in the coal mine for what we experienced uh, more recently in the 21st century.
1: Yeah, so this he was an unemployed truck driver from Arizona who had this tax dispute over a $471 IRS bill, and he'd been litigating it for years. And in 1970, he appealed to the Supreme Court uh, to hear his case, and they turned him down as they do with most uh, appeals. And he was outraged, and he decided to hijack a plane to Washington, D.C. and ask for $100 million to be taken directly from the Supreme Court and transferred to him as a way to punish the justices for ignoring him. And no one had ever asked for money before. He was the first to ask for ransom. And TWA, the airline involved, had no idea what to do. And they decided to try to mollify him with all the money they could find on short notice, which was $100,000, approximately, uh, thinking he'd be fine with that lesser sum. And and Barkley was not. He actually poured it all out over the cockpit and ordered the plane to take off. And um, while it was circling Dulles, he you know told the pilots that he was going to commit suicide and take all the passengers with him
0: one of the things that y- you talk about are the the pop Culture profilers, and we have John Daly. He was the he created the profile yes. for the FAA. Okay. Mm-hmm. But following in his footsteps was a man named David Hubbard, mm-hmm. and he was a really interesting figure. I yeah, <laughs> he
1: was a he was a strict Freudian, and he wrote this best selling book called The Skyjacker: His, his Flights of Fantasy. And uh, this book kind of gave his thoughts about who the prototypical hijacker was. And he had these deeply Freudian ideas that all this was rooted in childhood traumas with an alcoholic father and a distant religious mother. And you had these kids who uh, were late walkers, was one of his big theories, that all hijackers had these deformed inner ears and had poor equilibrium as a result. And therefore, they saw flight as this kind of liberating thing um, because they had, had such a hard time walking as children. And so he actually at one point uh, had these studies at his aberrant behavior center in Dallas where he experimented with trying to um, feed monkeys uh, prenatally more manganese and zinc so they wouldn't have deformed inner ears. And I guess the theory was that if they didn't have deformed inner ears, then you could somehow have a generation of humans who wouldn't have them and there would be no more hijackings. One of the things I think, though, he was onto something was he did a – cast a
0: fair amount of blame on the media. And that, I think, in in my reading of your book, seems it is, that was, uh, played a big part.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Time and again, we found these hijackers were deeply interested in in prior stories of hijackings. Uh, Often they would find newspaper clippings about hijackings uh, in their apartments afterwards during searches. It was very hard for the media to resist these stories because they were just so gripping and they translated so well to the medium of television because you could set up your cameras and record audio and have these great tearful interviews with the families of hostages while the plane was in the air. So it was fantastic theater for the public.
0: One of the things I think, too, that was interesting was the introduction of the Sky Marshals, which when we see them now, you know— you. Whenever you see them portrayed, again, in movies or TV, there's always one on the plane. But what you point out is the likelihood of a sky marshal capturing a a hijacker
1: was remote at best. Yes. Well, one of the big problems, they wanted initially 4,000 sky marshals in the air. The problem is, like, who's going to pay for this? And, in fact, uh, the Nixon administration proposed uh, levying a tax on every ticket. Uh, to pay for this. And the airlines were, were furious over this and lobbied very hard against this idea of the, of the tax. And, in fact, the tax died in Congress. There was really very few funds for this. So it ended up being, at any given time, at only 800 marshals on the job. and something like 15,000 flights per day. Uh, it was very difficult for them to be on the same flight as a hijacker.
0: Against the background of these hijackings and, and the turbulent 60s we have, uh, kathy kirko and and roger holder that they've met in san diego and they're not doing too well financially right <laughs> uh, uh, Ka- kathy has has a career that can at best be uh described as
1: dubious yeah she uh working in a massage parlor at this time um so basically you know a kind of a, a, a prostitute in some ways um low-grade prostitution, I guess you could say. And Roger is living with an assumed identity and bouncing checks is the way he's making his money. He had had a factory job for a while but was laid off, and so he'd taken on a new identity. Linton Charles White was his pseudonym, and he was just writing bounced checks and living off those, and he actually gets arrested. And he has a court date coming up, and he's AWOL, so he has all sorts of legal problems. And Kathy, at the same time, He tells her, once they start going out, he doesn't want her working at the massage parlor anymore. And so she has a little money saved up, but by the time we get to the eve of this hijacking, they're pretty much flat broke. I think it's interesting,
0: too, for how intelligent uh, Roger was, how concerned he was with fate and the stars and astrology. I think that's such an interesting combination of characteristics.
1: Yeah, it interested me. I I feel that... um, he thought that he was due for a greater circumstances than he currently had. He kind of had um, aspirations for a far greater life than his current circumstances, being broke and jobless and kind of a, a wanted criminal in San Diego. He thought, this isn't what I was cut out to do. I was meant to make, leave my mark on history in some manner. And astrology is an easy way to, to find importance, in this, you know, importance for yourself.
0: Uh, meanwhile, in the, in the cultural and h- historical background, Angela Davis is having her own problems in Los Angeles.
1: Yeah, Angela Davis, the, the famous radical communist professor from UCLA who'd lost her job and fired by Ronald Reagan after uh, much struggle, was on trial in a murder conspiracy trial in San Jose at that time, uh, accused of providing guns to these men who had stormed a courthouse in Marin County and that resulted in a shootout. It resulted in many deaths. And so she was on trial, basically for her life, uh, more or less. And Roger Holder, so many Americans, was very attracted to her cause. She was a real cause celeb,ra a real pop icon, and he wanted to help liberate her.
0: I think one of the things that's so interesting in this book is the way you layer these stories and bring us in and out of Angela and in and out of the uh, Holder and Kerkow and the, the backdrop of what the FAA is trying to get a uh, handle on on the hijackings. As a writer, when you were putting this together, did you map these all out separately and then put them together, or did you go more with uh, a flow of consciousness? What, what felt right?
1: Uh, a little more the latter. What I did in terms of outlining the book, um, instead of doing a traditional outline, Um, I just put together a bunch of images related to the stories. So, you know, if I wanted to write about a certain hijacking that wasn't from the main narrative, I would find a newspaper clipping and scan it in and put that in my storyboard, um, as I called it, instead of a traditional outline. And So that helped me conceive of how we pull in and out of the main narrative to give the historical background without deviating too much from what's really the central story, which is Roger and Kathy's story. I think being able to see it visually helped me kind of limit those tangents so they were informative and supportive of the, of the main thrust of the book without getting lost in those historical weeds, so to speak. So
0: you created essentially a graphic novel version of the book, too? <laughs> I did. On
1: my iPad, there's uh, over 200 images sequenced in exactly the way the story, the story goes, um, which I often, when I sit down with people, sometimes I'll just pull up my iPad and sweep through all the images to show them what the book's all about. Have you put that online? I haven't because I feel a lot of it would give away some important aspects of the story. <laughs> but on my the website for the book, um, theskiesbelongtous.com, there are about 21, 22 photos um, from that storyboard, original uh, primary source things that I have that kind of tell a lot of the background of the story. The story of, of Kirko
0: and Holder is so great because there's a... a, a a great love story here too. And I think that that's really important to the story that these people actually did have an emotional attachment to one another.
1: Yeah, a real infatuation in a lot of ways. I think it's important to remember how young they were when this happened. She was 20 and he was 22. And so a lot of us, you know, are crazy in love at that age and do crazy things. Very few of us do something this crazy, hijack a plane across an ocean. But I think it's important to remember the time that they were in kind of a really chaotic era in American history. You know, you have the a lot of disillusionment uh, and rage in America as a result of the Vietnam War and the decline of this idealism of the 60s. And you have these two young people who have a very powerful attraction to one another. Uh, and when you have that, it's a very potent mix, and you can kind of see how someone would choose to do something that we think would be completely bonkers. Well,
0: one of the things that's also interesting is that uh, Holder planned this out quite carefully and he called it without any
1: irony Operation Sisyphus, which
0: proved to be a, <laughs> a prophetic.
1: Yeah, I thought that was interesting in that he obviously had a command of, of Greek mythology and I thought it was a very cheeky name to give to something, a very kind of, kind of self-defeating name, right? It doesn't yes. really bode, <laughs> bode well for your, your prospects because Sisyphus, you know, by no means a success rolling that boulder up the hill. But uh, something about it just seemed right to him. Could you talk a little bit about uh, discovering his plans
0: and finding out, you know, his diagrams and the things he did uh, to prepare for this? Because that must have been some interesting research for you.
1: Yeah, so a lot of this was in the FBI documents I got through the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, And I got from the FBI alone, I think, uh, close to 3,000 pages of documents. And a lot of them were... Uh, things that they had taken from the plane he'd left behind, his hijacking notes, um, his his notebook that he left behind with all his plans. And it was fascinating to see how well thought out it was. Uh, One thing he did that was very clever was he had a briefcase in which he said he had a bomb, but he also told the pilots of this plane, Western Airlines Flight 701, that uh, he had four Confederates in the back who were members of the Weathermen, uh, the radical group. And of these four, one of them also had a bomb, and one of them was on LSD. And if anything happened to him uh, in the cockpit, uh, one of these confederates in the back would immediately detonate the second bomb. So it really planted more uncertainty in the pilots' minds of like, well, we can't do anything too drastic because if anything happens to him up here, Lord only knows what will happen back there. And this also played off this sense of paranoia that
0: from the very beginning had been installed in the public's minds because all of a sudden what used to be perceived as a safe mode of travel, now you're looking around at all the people around you who are all ordinary people just like you and wondering, who's the hijacker? It's, it's like the body snatchers. Yeah,
1: that's the one thing that I got from you know reading interviews and talking to passengers is that everyone was glancing around saying, well, who is it? And... And one thing, Holder being African-American, a lot of people assume that his Confederates must be black as well. And there was only one other black passenger. And in fact, at one point, I talk about, as one of the flight attendants told me, she overheard some of these passengers plotting, well, how do we, what are we going to do to this other black passenger who must be in cahoots with the hijacker? This completely innocent passenger. And they are actually plotting to club him over the head and, and kill him, actually. And she said, I, I could tell that this passenger overheard them plotting his murder and just looked out the window and hoped for the best. Now, the, the reactions of the flight
0: crew and the flight crew themselves, they're great characters. I love Newell. I think he's yeah. such a great guy.
1: Yeah, Bill Newell I interviewed um, was fantastic. I mean, really heroic in that he's the chief pilot in San Francisco and the plane lands there. And he volunteers himself to take over the hijacked flight and fly across an ocean uh, with these people who may have a bomb and whose intentions aren't totally known to him. He had been a POW in World War II, an incredibly well-respected man, and just a really pugnacious, outspoken guy who wouldn't you wouldn't take crap from the hijackers. And I have several scenes of him talking to Roger Holder, and really was a, a match wits with him in many ways. But Newell also and the airlines weren't going
0: to take uh, anything from the FBI either, who were really hot to uh, relieve themselves from the total embarrassment of having to deliver a ransom in a swimsuit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So the, the FBI, this phase in the epidemic, was very keen to stop hijackings with violence if necessary. And the airlines didn't want this because they didn't want passengers killed. That was their their worst nightmare, uh, the worst publicity is of a passenger is killed in a shootout. And so the FBI actually had designs in San Francisco and later in New York where the flight goes uh, to storm the plane, to use disguised agents to get on the planes and survey the situation, maybe use force to end the hijackings. And Western Airlines, and Bill New in particular, wants nothing to do with this. They do not want armed men on planes who might threaten the lives of passengers. Uh,
0: I think those scenes with the, with the FBI are, are really interesting because of the way, you know, again, the contrast to today uh, is just phenomenal in terms of the kind of security they had. Everything that we read in this book makes us reflect on our own civilization. and You think, wow, it's so weird the way we live nowadays, what we take as normal.
1: Yeah, one thing I've really been struck by with the book is a lot of people saying that they're reading it on planes and felt people were giving them weird looks about it. I think that's fascinating because people are so paranoid about the security culture that people are afraid to read about history. And compared to back then when you could walk from the curbside to the sometimes onto the plane with no ticket and no ID, the contrast is just really hard to believe sometimes. Well, it's interesting, too, that... um,
0: in recent times in the last uh, couple year there have been lots of people who have been tried to bring weapons onto planes and just quote forgot them.
1: Yes. <laughs> and, you know, certainly they're they're caught all the time and you know, I talk in the book about this first day they have universal screening in early nineteen seventy three and they find people with tons of weapons. I mean it was just a normal thing. Even you weren't a hijacker, you just brought your knife or your gun or Whatever it was in the plane, because prior to that, no one had ever bothered you about it. It was considered like it's not a not it was not an irregular thing to bring your loaded thirty onto a plane to your next destination.
0: Well, too uh, one of the things that I always thought was that uh, the in nine eleven when planes were used as weapons planes themselves were used as massive mm-hmm. destruction, weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. I always thought that that was the first instance of this, and it was not. And it was during this first outbreak that somebody tried to do something much more terrifying even.
1: Yeah, so this was the hijacking of Southern Airways Flight 49, which you're talking about. And this was really the hijacking that you know broke the camel's back, so to speak. It's <clears> in <throat> so November 1972, and you had a whole year of these increasingly violent, crazy uh, incidents uh, in the skies. And all of a sudden, you have these three uh, fugitives from Justice who hijack a plane in Alabama. And they want $10 million, or they're going to crash the plane into the nuclear reactor at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And it's kind of after this happens, and fortunately, peace, you know, peacefully resolved, more or less, at the end, um, the airlines realize that the, the risks of this poor security are just too grave to ignore. Um, the liabilities associated with that are something that they just couldn't handle.
0: Uh, at this point, the hijackings in the planes had become national security threats as opposed to uh, economic security threats to the airplane's economic yeah, solvency.
1: that's exactly right. And so it's shortly after this, um, less than a, you know, just a few weeks after that incident, that you have the Nixon administration make an executive order saying universal screening has to come into effect uh, January 5th, 1973. And the airlines were really frightened that there would be a, a huge dust-ups at airports and people were forced to go through this and wait in the security queues and be searched. But in fact, the public welcomed this because they were just sick to death and frightened about the turn the epidemic had taken.
0: Uh, uh, Kirko and Holder had a kind of success that was unique, and, and I, one of the things— that's interesting about this book is a variety of people we meet. We meet Angela Davis and she has her intersection with them, and we also meet Eldridge Cleaver as well. <laughs> uh, he's he's, uh, in, uh, he's in, in Algiers.
1: yeah, so this is where um, the flight ends up going after many um, many mistakes during the hijacking. They kind of by kismet, they end up in Algiers, where Eldridge Cleaver is living with heading up a commune essentially of exiled black panthers. And Roger Holder was aware of this and asked for asylum with the Black Panthers, which the Algerian government actually lets them do, lets them move in with these Panthers. And Cleaver and Holder, who do not actually get along very well at all, um, actually become characters whose stories track one another for several years afterwards. And Cleaver, to me, was a fascinating character. Um a man who was greatly respected in the U.S. by by the left, especially because of his literary work *Soul and Ice* and his talent for speaking, he'd run for president in 1968 and then uh, gone into exile because he was facing trial on an attempted murder charge in the Bay Area. And uh, as he's moving through the world, he's you know spending time in Viet- North Vietnam and North Korea and becoming more and more out there in his politics, but also becoming much, much more cynical and much more about how can I make money off being a radical.
0: You know, I, I love all the characters in this book, the way you create these characters. are so nuanced Um Cleaver and, and Angela Davis and, and uh, Holder and Kirkow. I, I like you to talk about creating their character arcs, particularly uh, Holder, who I think and, and Kirkow, who have interesting uh, character arcs. Holder, I think, is an absolutely classic, almost Greek. It's good; he got to the Greek myth, almost a Greek tragic hero.
1: Yeah, I see Holder and Kirkow as switching places in this book a lot. Mm-hmm. So initially, when they're doing this hijacking, it's all Roger's plan. And Kathy's almost along for the ride, for a thrill ride in a lot of ways. She's deeply in love and she wants to rebel. But over time, as they're on the run for many years, you see Roger kind of disintegrate mentally in many ways. And Kathy come into her own as she matures and grows and shows that she wasn't just this, this fun-loving girl who just wanted to have a good time, but is actually this really savvy, intelligent woman. And you have a point, actually, where she all of a sudden is taking care of Roger, that, you know, she's the one in charge. And uh, they really switch places. And, and you know, as he disintegrates more, she decides that their relationship is actually holding her back in many ways.
0: You know, you do a great job, too, of mixing this uh, a nice sense of humor, a sense of tragedy, and a, a clear vision of the 60s. This is one of the best books about the 60s I think I've ever read because it kind of evades a lot of the, the cliches of books that deal with that time. And I'd like you to talk about doing that.
1: I think the biggest thing for me was seeing it as um, the aftermath of the 60s. I like to see it as, as these skyjackings in a response to disillusionment with the fact that a lot of the idealism of hope of the 60s hadn't worked out as intended. All that marching hadn't ended the war. Uh, you had uh, President Nixon in the White House after all, after all that. You had a civil rights movement that had been kind of decimated by assassinations and, and resistance um, from entrenched authorities. And so I feel there was a lot of rage, and some people dealt with that rage by slipping into hedonism, which was a pretty common theme in the 70s. Um, and some people lashed out in these increasingly violent, bizarre ways, which is the way I view this epidemic.
0: One of the things you're talking about, too, is, uh, you know, true crime history. And I'd like you to talk about uh, looking at this in terms of criminal, legal, and political uh aspects which you manipulate and show us show us how this this evolution uh to
1: although we don't ever get to where we are today you can mm-hmm. see how we got here. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I think that's important to keep in mind is were these people criminals in the classic sense of the word? There's a, a little vignette in the book about one of these hijackers who um had carried out one of these hijackings and asked for a gold bars and all sorts of crazy stuff, and it turns out he had this backstory. Where he'd been in Vietnam and had been traumatized. And at his trial, he gets up and says, "I'm not a, I'm not a criminal in the classic sense of the word." And I think that really applies to all these skyjackers. They didn't have, uh, they weren't true believers in causes uh, the same way we conceptualize, you know, uh, terrorists today. They were people who felt desperate. They felt that they had no more choices in life, and they needed radical solutions to their problems. And they saw skyjacking as a radical way to remake their lives. And um, they were deluded and, and psychologically unwell, but they weren't criminals in the sense of uh, they wanted to make careers out of getting money out of. They wanted to really reinvent themselves through this more than anything else. Uh, what's interesting is that a book full
0: of great stories and. Uh you know, driven by a number of great stories and intertwining great stories shows the power of story over these people who just essentially wanted to revise and rewrite their lives.
1: Yeah, I really see the the central theme of the book being reinvention, um, which I think is, you know, the most American of aspirations, this promise that anyone can become somebody else in this country. But at the same time, there's that promise, but there's also the reality of things hold you back. Um, I think as Maybe the most American story is, you know, Jay Gatsby becoming Jay Gatsby. Uh, But he can never quite leave behind the fact that he is just a poor kid from North Dakota. And I think it's the same thing here where you have people who really want to reinvent themselves, but uh, people can look at them and say, well, you're a different color ethnicity, or I can see that what your background was. You know, you can't totally ever leave that behind. And in this case, you have people, at least one character in this book, who maybe did reinvent herself but only by leaving America behind. She was able to achieve that American dream.
0: And I think you do a great job, too, of creating scenes of tension, scenes of mystery, and essentially plotting the book. And that must have been a challenge because history does not uh, uh, lend itself well to, to
1: plotting. No, it doesn't. And um, certainly one of the problems is that you know, the memories of the participants are better about some episodes than others. Um, it was, you know, much easier to get um, interviews and factual sources about, say, actually people on the plane during the hijacking than the aftermath years later. So, you know, I have to make some decisions about how do you keep pace going and how do you keep enough information in the book to make this grand narrative, over sweeping narrative over time. And uh, I'm wondering, uh, as a writer, when you were uh, putting
0: this together, could you talk about uh, this is a book that looks like, I mean, clearly, it, you talk about 3,000 pages from the one central thing alone. I talk about um, cutting stuff out
1: of this book and bringing it bring it to heel. So it's really, it's a pacey uh, thriller. So I would say I learned a lot from writing my first book, a book called Now the Hell Will Start, um, which is the story uh, of an African-American GI from Washington, D.C. in World War II who uh, kills a commanding officer in Burma where he's building a road and goes native in the jungle with a tribe of headhunters. And that was my first book, and I didn't quite know what I was doing, and I feel like one of the drawbacks of that book is sometimes I get lost in the historical tangents. And I learned a lot from the feedback to that book. It it was successful, and people liked it, but I also got some criticism about getting lost in the historical weeds in this book. And so using that feedback from reviewers and readers was really helpful to me in understanding what I had to do to kind of make the structure leaner and meaner for this narrative so people wouldn't get pulled away from Roger and Kathy's story too much into these um, historical tangents. You call this book leaner
0: and meaner, but actually I'd say it's really full of heart and, and ultimately rather sweet and almost sentimental. In a good I, way.
1: Yeah, I had a you know, I had a lot of empathy for Roger Holder and Kathy Kirko, which is strange to say that they they, they hijacked a plane and they caused people a lot of terror on this plane, which I certainly understand. And uh, I, I certainly view the flight crew as, as heroic, and I don't I don't necessarily view Roger and Kathy as heroic, but I wanted to understand why these young people had made these choices and how they grappled with the fact afterwards that this one dramatic choice they had made it completely obliterated their past, made it so they really couldn't go home again. Um, and I wanted to empathize with them and understand what would drive someone to do that, and how they dealt with the consequences of those actions—made this these folly of youth actions.
0: What are you working on now?
1: Uh, the million-dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> um, nothing really, because I got to be honest. Like this book took a lot out of me. Mm-hmm. You know, right now I'm kind of focused on pushing the book and you know, maybe working on some movie stuff associated with it. It's been gratifying to me to, to see people from different walks of life having very different but very positive reactions to it. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I'm doing this event at Wire Magazine tonight, and actually the, the family of the captain of the first plane is coming. Oh, really? To the reading, yeah. That's great. And so, you know, they're really intrigued by it. But also I've, I've heard from Roger's sister... And uh, who we interviewed for the book and, and mm-hmm. Roger's girlf- longtime girlfriend. And they're both really happy with it because he wanted to be remembered by history. And, you know, I think this was his chance to.
0: Well, you did a great job of with him. I, like I thought, I mean, you know.
1: Well, I, I liked him on a personal level. I, mm-hmm. I really found him to be charismatic, but also smart and funny and a little bit crazy. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I, I, I liked hanging out with him. We laughed a lot. I mean, you know, it was a good time being with him
0: you get onto planes all the time now and fly, I would presume. Yeah. Uh, talk about how what you wrote and what you read changes
1: your perceptions of how what's around you now. You know, one thing this did is make me very interested in aviation. I realized that uh, I'd never really paid attention to the planes I was on and like what the flight crews are doing. Um, so now I really have become a interested in actually the hardware that I'm flying on and, and what it takes to get a plane off the ground. It's your destination. I have a, a great deal more respect for people who operate airplanes, but I'll confess, whenever I'm on an airplane and they announce uh, 25 minutes to landing, Roger and Kathy are the first thing I think about because that's when Roger Holder made his move uh, as the plane approached Seattle. And so I try to think that You know, what if I heard that PA announcement a couple minutes after that saying, you know, I have a gentleman up up here who doesn't want to go to our intended destination, and I try to imagine being in that scenario, and it's it's very difficult in this day and age.
0: I've been speaking with Brendan Kerner. His new book is The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking. Thank you for joining me, Brendan.
1: Thanks a million for having me.